Book 5, Chapter 10, Part 1 of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10. I now turn to arguments, the name under which we comprise the enthymemata, epigenemata, and apodeixes of the Greeks, terms which, in spite of their difference, have much the same meaning. For the enthymemi, which we translate by commentum or commentatio, there being no alternative, though we should be wiser to use the Greek name, has three meanings. Firstly, it means anything conceived in the mind. This is not, however, the sense of which I am now speaking. Secondly, it signifies a proposition with a reason. And thirdly, a conclusion of an argument, drawn either from denial of consequence or from incompatibles. Although there is some controversy on this point. For there are some who style a conclusion from consequence an epigereme, while it will be found that the majority hold the view that an enthymeme is a conclusion from incompatibles, wherefore Cornificius styles it a contrarium or argument from contraries. Some again call it a rhetorical syllogism, others an incomplete syllogism, because its parts are not so clearly defined or of the same number as those of the regular syllogism, since such precision is not specially required by the orator. Valgius translates epicherema by agressio, that is, an attempt. It would, however, in my opinion, be truer to say that it is not our handling of the subject, but the thing itself which we attempt, which should be called an epicherema, that is to say, the argument by which we try to prove something, and which, even if it has not yet been stated in so many words, has been clearly conceived by the mind. Others regard it not as an attempted or imperfect proof, but a complete proof, falling under the most special species of proof. Consequently, according to its proper and most generally received appellation, it must be understood in the sense of a definite conception of some thought consisting of at least three parts. Some call an epicherema a reason, but Cicero is more correct in calling it a reasoning, although he too seems to derive this name from the syllogism rather than anything else, for he calls the syllogistic basis a ratiocinative basis, and quotes philosophers to support him. And, since there is a certain kinship between a syllogism and epicheireme, it may be thought that he was justified in his use of the latter term. An apodexis is a clear proof, hence the use of the term grammicae apodexis, linear demonstrations, by the geometricians. Cecilius holds that it differs from the epigereme solely in the kind of conclusion arrived at, and that an apodexis is simply an incomplete epigereme, for the same reason that we said an enthymeme differed from a syllogism, for an epigereme is also part of a syllogism. Some think that an apodexis is portion of an epigereme, namely the part containing the proof. But all authorities, however much they may differ on other points, define both in the same way, insofar as they call both a method of proving what is not certain by means of what is certain. Indeed, this is the nature of all arguments, for what is certain cannot be proved by what is uncertain. To all these forms of argument, the Greeks give the name of pistes, 
a term which, though the literal translation is fides, a warrant of credibility, is best translated by probatio, proof. But argument has several other meanings. For the plots of plays composed for acting in the theater are called arguments, while Pedianus, when explaining the themes of the speeches of Cicero, says the argument is as follows. Cicero himself, in writing to Brutus, says, Fearing that I might transfer something from that source to my Cato, although the argument is quite different. It is thus clear that all subjects for writing are so called. Nor is this to be wondered at, since the term is also in common use among artists, hence the Virgilian phrase, a mighty argument. Again, a work which deals with a number of different themes is called rich in argument. But the sense with which we are now concerned is that which provides proof. Celsus, indeed, treats the terms proof, indication, credibility, attempt, simply as different names for the same things, in which, to my thinking, he betrays a certain confusion of thought. For proof and credibility are not merely the result of logical processes, but may equally be secured by inartificial arguments. Now, I have already distinguished signs, or, as he prefers to call them, indications from arguments. Consequently, since an argument is a process of reasoning which provides proof and enables one thing to be inferred from another, and confirms facts which are uncertain by reference to facts which are certain, there must need to be something in every case which requires no proof. Otherwise, there will be nothing by which we can prove anything. There must be something which either is or is believed to be true, by means of which doubtful things may be rendered credible. We may regard as certainties, first, those things which we perceive by the senses, things, for instance, that we hear or see, such as signs or indications. Secondly, those things about which there is general agreement, such as the existence of the gods or the duty of loving one's parents. Thirdly, those things which are established by law or have passed into current usage, if not throughout the whole world, at any rate in the nation or state where the case is being pleaded. There are, for instance, many rights which rest not on law but on custom. Finally, there are the things which are admitted by either party, and whatever has already been proved or is not disputed by our adversary. Thus, for instance, it may be argued that, since the world is governed by providence, the state should similarly be governed by some controlling power. It follows that the state must be so governed, once it is clear that the world is governed by providence. Further, the man who is to handle arguments correctly must know the nature and meaning of everything and their usual effects. For it is thus that we arrive at probable arguments, or eikota, as the Greeks call them. With regard to credibility, there are three degrees. First, the highest, based on what usually happens, as, for instance, the assumption that children are loved by their parents. Secondly, there is the highly probable, as, for instance, the assumption that a man, in the enjoyment of good health, will probably live till tomorrow. The third degree is found where there is nothing absolutely against an assumption, such as that a theft committed in a house was the work of one of the household. Consequently, Aristotle, in the second book of his rhetoric, 
has made a careful examination of all that commonly happens to things or persons, as, for instance, what is the natural result of wealth or ambition or superstition, what meets with the approval of good men, what is the object of a soldier's or a farmer's desires, and by what means everything is sought or shunned. For my part, I do not propose to pursue this subject. It is not merely a long, but an impossible or rather an infinite task. Moreover, it is within the compass of the common understanding of mankind. If, however, anyone wishes to pursue the subject, I have indicated where he may apply. But all credibility, and it is with credibility that the great majority of arguments are concerned, turns on questions such as the following. Whether it is credible that father has been killed by his son, or that a father has committed incest with his daughter, or, to take questions of an opposite character, whether it is credible that a stepmother has poisoned her stepchild, or that a man of luxurious life has committed adultery, or, again, whether a crime has been openly committed, or false evidence given for a small bribe, since each of these crimes is the result of a special cast of character as a rule, though not always. If it were always so, there would be no room for doubt and no argument. Let us now turn to consider the places of arguments, although some hold that they are identical with the topics which I have already discussed above. But I do not use this term in its usual acceptance, namely commonplaces, directed against luxury, adultery, and the like, but in the sense of the secret places where arguments reside, and from which they must be drawn forth. For, just as all kinds of produce are not provided by every country, and as you will not succeed in finding a particular bird or beast if you are ignorant of the localities where it has its usual haunts or birthplace, as even the various kinds of fish flourish in different surroundings, some preferring a smooth and others a rocky bottom, and are found on different shores and in diverse regions, you will, for instance, never catch a sturgeon or wrasse in Italian waters, so not every kind of argument can be derived from every circumstance, and consequently our speech requires discrimination. Otherwise, we shall fall into serious error, and after wasting our labor through lack of method, we shall fail to discover the argument which we desire, unless assisted by some happy chance. But if we know the circumstances which give rise to each kind of argument, we shall easily see when we come to a particular place, what arguments it contains. Firstly, then, arguments may be drawn from persons, for, as I have already said, all arguments fall into two classes, those concerned with things and those concerned with persons, since causes, time, place, occasion, instruments, means, and the like are all accidents of things. I have no intention of tracing all the accidents of persons, as many have done, but shall confine myself to those from which arguments may be drawn. Such are birth, for persons are generally regarded as having some resemblance to their parents and ancestors, a resemblance which sometimes leads to their living disgracefully or honorably, as the case may be. Then there is nationality, for races have their own character, and the same action is not probable in the case of a barbarian, a Roman, and a Greek. Country is another, 
for there is a like diversity in the laws, institutions, and opinions of different states. Sex, since, for example, a man is more likely to commit a robbery, a woman to poison. Age, since different actions suit different ages. Education and training, since it makes a great difference who were the instructors and what the method of instruction in each individual case. Bodily constitution, for beauty is often introduced as an argument for lust, strength as an argument for insolence, and their opposites for opposite conduct. Fortune, since the same acts are not to be expected from rich and poor, or from one who is surrounded by troops of relations, friends, or clients, and one who lacks all these advantages. Condition, too, is important, for it makes a great difference whether a man be famous or obscure, a magistrate or a private individual, a father or a son, a citizen or a foreigner, a free man or a slave, married or unmarried, a father or childless. Nor must we pass by natural disposition, for avarice, anger, pity, cruelty, severity, and the like, may often be adduced to prove the credibility or the reverse of a given act. It is, for instance, often asked whether a man's way of living be luxurious, frugal, or parsimonious. Then, there is occupation, since a rustic, a lawyer, a man of business, a soldier, a sailor, a doctor, all perform very different actions. We must also consider the personal ambitions of individuals, for instance, whether they wish to be thought rich or eloquent, just or powerful. Past life and previous utterances are also a subject for investigation, since we are in the habit of inferring the present from the past. To these some add passion, by which they mean some temporary emotion such as anger or fear. They also add design, which may refer to the past, present, or future. These latter, however, although accidents of persons, should be referred to that class of arguments which we draw from causes, as also should certain dispositions of mind, for example, when we inquire whether one man is the friend or enemy of another. Names also are treated as accidents of persons. This is perfectly true, but names are rarely food for argument, unless they have been given for some special reasons, such as the titles of wise, great, pious, or unless the name has suggested some special thought to the bearer. Lentulus, for instance, had the idea suggested to him by the fact that, according to the Sibylline books and the responses of the soothsayers, the tyranny was promised to three members of the Cornelian family, and he considered himself to be the third in succession to Sulla and Cinna, since he too bore the name Cornelius. On the other hand, the conceit employed by Euripides where he makes Eteocles taunt his brother Polynices on the ground that his name is evidence of character, is feeble in the extreme. Still, a name will often provide the subject for a jest. Witness the frequent jests of Cicero on the name of Verres. Such, then, and the like, are the accidents of persons. It is impossible to deal with them all either here or in other portions of this work, and I must content myself with pointing out the lines on which further inquiry should proceed. I now pass to things. Of these, actions are the most nearly connected with persons, and must therefore be treated first. In regard to every action, the question arises either why, or where, or when, or how, 
or by what means the action is performed. Consequently, arguments are drawn from the causes of past or future actions. The matter of these causes, by some called hule, by others dunamis, falls into two genera, which are each divided into four species. For the motive for any action is, as a rule, concerned with the acquisition, increase, preservation, and use of things that are good, or with the avoidance, diminution, endurance of things that are evil, or with escape therefrom. All these considerations carry great weight in deliberative oratory as well. But right actions have right motives, while evil actions are the result of false opinions, which originate in the things which men believe to be good or evil. Hence, spring errors and evil passions, such as anger, hatred, envy, desire, hope, ambition, audacity, fear, and others of a similar kind. To these accidental circumstances may often be added such as drunkenness or ignorance, which serve sometimes to excuse and sometimes to prove a charge, as, for instance, when a man is said to have killed one person while lying in wait for another. Further, motives are often discussed not merely to convict the accused of the offense with which he is charged, but also to defend him when he contends that his action was right, that is to say, proceeded from an honorable motive, a theme of which I have spoken more fully in the third book. Questions of definition are also at times intimately connected with motives. Is a man a tyrannicide if he kills a tyrant by whom he has been detected in the act of adultery? Or is he guilty of sacrilege, who tore down arms dedicated in a temple to enable him to drive the enemy from the city? Arguments are also drawn from place. With a view to proving our facts, we consider such questions as whether a place is hilly or level, near the coast or inland, planted or uncultivated, crowded or deserted, near or far, suitable for carrying out a given design or the reverse. This is a topic which is treated most carefully by Cicero in his Promilone. These points and the like generally refer to questions of fact, but occasionally to questions of law as well. For we may ask whether a place is public or private, sacred or profane, our own or another's, just as where persons are concerned we ask whether a man is a magistrate, a father, a foreigner. Hence arise such questions as the following. You have stolen private money, but since you stole it from a temple, it is not theft but sacrilege. You have killed adulterers, an act permitted by law, but since the act was done in a brothel, it is murder. You have committed an assault, but since the object of your assault was a magistrate, the crime is les majesté. Similarly, it may be urged in defense. The act was lawful, because I was a father, a magistrate. But such points afford matter for argument when there is a controversy as to the facts, and matter for inquiry when the dispute turns on a point of law. Place also frequently affects the quality of an action, for the same action is not always lawful or seemly under all circumstances, while it makes considerable difference in what state the inquiry is taking place, for they differ both in custom and law. Further arguments drawn from place may serve to secure approval or the reverse. Ajax, for example, in Ovid says, What, do we plead our cause before the ships? 
And is Ulysses there preferred to me? Again, one of the many charges brought against Milo was that he killed Claudius on the monument of his ancestors. Such arguments may also carry weight in deliberative oratory, as may those drawn from time, which I shall now proceed to discuss. Time may, as I have said elsewhere, be understood in two different senses, general and special. The first sense is seen in words and phrases such as now, formerly, in the reign of Alexander, in the days of the siege of Troy, and whenever we speak of past, present, or future. The second sense occurs when we speak either of definite periods of time, such as in summer, in winter, by night, by day, or of fortuitous periods, such as in time of pestilence, in time of war, during a banquet. Certain Latin writers have thought it a sufficient distinction to call the general sense time, and the special times. In both senses, time is of importance in advisory speeches and demonstrative oratory, but not so frequently as in forensic. For questions of law turn on time, while it also determines the quality of actions and is of great importance in questions of fact. For instance, occasionally it provides irrefragable proofs, which may be illustrated by a case which I have already cited, when one of the signatories to a document has died before the day on which it was signed, or when a person is accused of the commission of some crime, although he was only an infant at the time, or not yet born. Further, all kinds of arguments may easily be drawn either from facts previous to a certain act or contemporary or subsequent. As regards antecedent facts, the following example will illustrate my meaning. You threatened to kill him. You went out by night. You started before him. Motives of actions may also belong to pastime. Some writers have shown themselves over-subtle in their classification of the second class of circumstances, making a sound was heard, an example of circumstances combined with an act, and a shout was raised, an instance of circumstances attached to an act. As regards subsequent circumstances, I may cite accusations such as you hid yourself, you fled, livid spots and swellings appeared on the corpse. The counsel for the defense will employ the same divisions of time to discredit the charge which is brought against him. In these considerations are included everything in connection with words and deeds, but in two distinct ways. For some things are done because something else is like to follow, and others because something else has previously been done, as, for instance, when the husband of a beautiful woman is accused of having acted as a procurer on the ground that he bought her after she was found guilty of adultery, or when a debauched character is accused of parricide on the ground that he said to his father, you have rebuked me for the last time. For, in the former case, the accused is not a procurer because he bought the woman, but bought her because he was a procurer, while in the latter the accused is not a parricide because he used these words, but used them because he intended to kill his father. With regard to accidental circumstances, which also provide matter for arguments, these clearly belong to subsequent time, but are distinguished by a certain special quality, as, for instance, if I should say, Scipio was a better general than Hannibal, for he conquered Hannibal. He was a good pilot, for he was never shipwrecked. He was a good farmer, for he gathered in huge harvests. 
or referring to bad qualities. He was a prodigal, for he squandered his patrimony. His life was disgraceful, for he was hated by all. We must also consider the resources possessed by the parties concerned, more especially when dealing with questions of fact, for it is more credible that a smaller number of persons were killed by a larger, a weaker party by a stronger, sleepers by men that were wide awake, the unsuspecting by the well-prepared, while the converse arguments may be used to prove the opposite. Such considerations arise both in deliberative and forensic oratory. In the latter, they occur in relation to two questions, namely, whether some given person had the will, and whether he had the power to do the deed. For hope will often create the will to act. Hence, the well-known inference in Cicero, Claudius lay in wait for Milo, not Milo for Claudius, for Claudius had a retinue of sturdy slaves, while Milo was with a party of women. Claudius was mounted, Milo in a carriage, Claudius lightly clad, Milo hampered by a cloak. With resources we make couple instruments, which form part of resources and means. But sometimes instruments will provide us with indications as well, as for instance if we find a javelin sticking in a dead body. To these we may add manner, the Greek tropos, in regard to which we ask how a thing was done. Manner is concerned sometimes with quality and the letter of the law. We may, for instance, argue that it was unlawful to kill an adulterer by poison. Sometimes with questions of fact, as for example, if I argue that an act was committed with a good intent, and therefore openly, or with a bad intent, and therefore treacherously, by night, in a lonely place. In all cases, however, in which we inquire into the nature and meaning of an act, and which can be considered by themselves apart from all considerations of persons, and all else that gives rise to the actual cause, there are clearly three points to which we must give attention, namely, whether it is, what it is, and of what kind it is. But as there are certain places of argument which are common to all three questions, this triple division is impracticable, and we must therefore consider these questions rather in connection with those places in which they most naturally arise. Arguments, then, may be drawn from definition, sometimes called finitio and sometimes finis. Definition is of two kinds. We may ask whether a particular quality is a virtue, or make a definition precede, and ask what is the nature of a virtue. Such a definition is either stated in general terms, such as rhetoric is a science of speaking well, or in detail, such as rhetoric is a science of correct conception, arrangement, and utterance, coupled with a retentive memory and a dignified delivery. Further, we may define a word by giving its content, as in the preceding instances, or by etymology. We may, for instance, explain assiduus by deriving it from as and do, locopless by deriving it from copia locorum, pecuniosus from copia pecorum. Genus, species, difference, and property seem more especially to afford scope for definition, for we derive arguments from all of these. Genus is of little use when we desire to prove a species, but of great value for its elimination. A tree is not necessarily a plane tree, but that which is not a tree is certainly not a plane tree. Again, virtue is not necessarily the virtue of justice, but that which is not a virtue is certainly not justice. 
we must proceed from the genus to the ultimate species. For example, to say that man is an animal will not suffice, for animal merely gives us the genus, nor yet will the addition of the words subject to death be adequate, for although this epithet gives us a species, it is common to other animals as well. If, however, we define man as a rational animal, we need nothing further to make our mention clear. On the other hand, species will give us clear proof of genus, but is of little service for its elimination. For example, justice is always a virtue, but that which is not justice may still be a virtue, such as fortitude, constancy, or self-control. Genus, therefore, cannot be eliminated by species, unless all the species included in the genus be eliminated, as for instance in the following sentence, that which is neither rational nor mortal nor an animal is not a man. To these they add property and difference. Properties serve to establish definitions, differences to overthrow them. A property is that which happens to one particular object and that alone. Speech and laughter, for instance, are properties of men. Or it may be something specially belonging to an object, but not to it alone. Heating, for instance, is a property of fire. The same thing may also have a number of properties. Light and heat are both properties of fire. Consequently, the omission of any property in a definition will impair it, but the introduction of a property, whatever it may be, will not necessarily establish a definition. We have, however, often to consider what is a property of some given object, for example, if it should be asserted, on the ground of etymology, that the peculiar property of a tyrannicide is to kill tyrants, we should deny it, for an executioner is not ipso facto a tyrannicide if he executes a tyrant who has been delivered to him for the purpose. Nor again is he a tyrannicide who kills a tyrant unwittingly or against his will. What is not a property will be a difference. It is, for instance, one thing to be a slave, and another to be in a state of servitude. Hence the distinction raised in connection with persons assigned to their creditors for debt. A slave, if he is manumitted, becomes a freedman, but this is not the case with one who is assigned. There are also other points of difference, which are dealt with elsewhere. Again, the term difference is applied in cases when the genus is divided into species, and one species is subdivided. Animal, for instance, is a genus, mortal a species, while terrestrial or biped is a difference, for they are not actually properties, but serve to show the difference between such animals and quadrupeds or creatures of the sea. This distinction, however, comes under the province not so much of argument as of exact definition. Cicero separates genus and species, which latter he calls form, from definition, and includes them under relation. For example, if a person to whom another man has left all his silver should claim all his silver money as well, he would base his claim upon genus. On the other hand, if, when a legacy has been left to a married woman holding the position of mater familias, it should be maintained that the legacy is not due to a woman who never came into the power of her husband. The argument is based on species, since there are two kinds of marriage. Cicero further shows that definition is assisted by division, which he distinguishes from partition, making the latter the dissection of a whole into its parts, and the former the division of a genus into its forms or species.
the number of parts he regards as being uncertain, as for instance the elements of which a state consists. The forms or species are, however, certain, as for instance the number of forms of government, which we are told are three, democracy, oligarchy, and monarchy. It is true that he does not use these illustrations, since, as he was writing to Trebatius, he preferred to draw his examples from law. I have chosen my illustrations as being more obvious. Properties have relation to questions of fact as well. For instance, it is the property of a good man to act rightly, of an angry man to be violent in speech or action, and consequently we believe that such acts are committed by persons of the appropriate character, or not committed by persons of inappropriate character. For just as certain persons possess certain qualities, so certain others do not possess certain qualities, and the argument is of precisely the same nature, though from opposite premises. End of chapter 10, part 1